Chapter 20, verse 1. After the disturbances ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them and saying farewell, he left to go to Macedonia. Now, this is important because Paul's choosing of his own volition. He would, remember, he was already planning to leave Ephesus for the next leg of his journey. This is probably just like, I better get my orders in there a little bit faster. But he's not sneaking out in the middle of the night. He's not being driven out of the city. He actually has time to bring all of them together and say his farewells. After he had gone through those regions and spoken many words of encouragement to the believers, there he came to Greece, where he stayed for three months because the Jews had made a plot against him as he was intending to sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia, and Paul was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus of Berea, Ariochus of Secundus, and from Thessalonica, Gaius from Debris, and Timothy as well as um, Tychicus and Tromethus from the province of Asia. These had gone on ahead and were waiting for us in Troas. The idea is that he is beginning to circulate back through his travels in order to strengthen the believers and head back to Jerusalem. But when it comes back to going back through Ephesus, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to go back to Ephesus. And he takes a longer journey through Asia, Macedonia and Asia, in order to get back or head back to Jerusalem, so to speak. And at this point, people that he has sent out, disciples, to prepare the way for him, they start gathering to him one by one by one. And so his entourage is getting bigger and bigger as people that he's sent out to different cities are starting to come back to him, and they're beginning to regroup. So then they had to throw us. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread, and within five days we came to the others in Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we met and broke bread, Paul began to speak to the people because he intended to leave for the next day. He extended his message until midnight. It is at this point that the we statements begin again. When they get to Philippi, Luke meets back up with again. And they head out to Troas, and he begins to speak there. It is why he is in Macedonia, somewhere in Macedonia. We don't know exactly what city, but as he's going through these Macedonian cities of Berea and Thessalonica, Philippi and that kind of stuff, this is at the time that he writes Second Corinthians. And so he writes a second letter to the Corinthians, urging them to Christ-like behavior. Now remember I told you, this would actually have been his fourth letter to the Corinthians, but we don't have the well, the fourth one we know of. We don't have at least the first and the um, third letters. And so it's about this time that he writes to Corinth in 50, somewhere between 55 and 56 AD. In Philippi, before he goes to Troas, they celebrate the unleavened bread, which is the day after Passover. This time, Passover was a one-day festival. Unleavened bread was a seven, eight-day festival. But there were so many Jews that had to sacrifice that they merged all into one week and one festival. And so they celebrate this Passover here. So then they move on to Troas, and Paul begins to preach. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we met to break bread, Paul began to speak to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, he extended his message until midnight. You thought messages were long at your church. He starts preaching early in the day, and he goes all the way to midnight. Like, well, I am leaving soon, and this is the last message you will go, so I'm just going to say everything that I've ever wanted to say. 
There were many lamps in the upstairs room where he was meeting, and a young man named Eutychus, who was sitting in the window, was sinking into a deep sleep while Paul continued to speak for a long time. Fast asleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. So he's sitting in the window, he falls asleep. I mean, it's 12 midnight. And he falls and he dies. Paul went down and threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him and said, Do not be distressed, for he is still alive. And he basically raised him from the dead. But here's what's interesting. Notice the way this is phrased or worded or compacted. Do not be distressed, for he is still alive. Then Paul went back upstairs, and after he had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long time until dawn, and then he left. They took the boy home alive and was greatly comforted. Every single time we've seen a resurrection in the Bible, it's a big deal, right? Elijah takes the boy and lays down him three times and says all these things, hands it back to the mother. The mother says, now I know that your God is the most powerful God of all of the world. Elisha does the same thing. He brings the boy up. In fact, she goes and tracks Elisha down and brings him back and says, here's my boy. He raises him. She makes a big deal about it, right? Lazarus being raised by Jesus has made a big deal about it. This just says, the guy fell out of the window. He died. They carried him back in. Paul laid down and said, don't worry. He's still alive. Raised him from the dead. Immediately went back to preaching all the way to dawn. Like, like, that's a big deal, Paul. You just raised a boy from the dead. And the only thing you can say is, he's alive now, let's get back to the sermon. Okay, like, this is important stuff. But it shows you what Luke is doing here, because it might have been a little bit more, like, elaborate. It might have been a little bit more like, oh my gosh, he's alive, than what Luke is making out. I guarantee you it is. But Luke is compressing and compacting all this because the point that he's making is the most important thing here, though, is the word. It's not the miracles. And you're seeing that more and more as we move on. As the gospel is spreading and more and more people are embracing it and the word is becoming more prolific in the Roman Empire, not as prolific as America right now where you've got a Bible area with a printing press, but more prolific than it's ever been before, and the Roman roads make this possible. And more and more disciples are converting and going out to all these different places, right? When Paul first started out, it was him and Barnabas. Now he's got all these people are like meeting up with him at different places and going out and meeting back up. And they're spreading to say, who knows who Timothy's disciples are and, and all these other guys. You're seeing fewer and fewer miracles. Luke is making less and less of a big deal about the miracles. And what you're going to find too is there's going to be fewer and fewer rescues. When we get to Jerusalem, all the rescues are gone. There's going to be no more miraculous freeings from prisons. No more just crowds losing their attention. The disciples are no longer going to be escaped. At this point, disciple after disciple is starting to be crucified or killed or whatever. And what you've got to realize is that first and foremost, the most important thing to God is the word. Is the word of God. Like I said, miracles are subjective. They do not objectively and concretely in detail communicate who God is. It demonstrates power in his love, but not the theology that you need to distinguish him from all other beings. The word of God is indisputable. Now, yes, we've been around long enough that people can argue up and down and 
interpret things however they want. But that's the word of God. And I really, as even as I've done, I've done research and I've seen things um, in my own life and I've seen this in other countries and I've watched so many testimonies from missionaries and people of other countries. I've read so many missionary books. I have come, and I'm not saying this is a fact, but I've come to the conclusion that where there's an absence of the word, there's a greater presence of miracles and supernatural events. But as the word becomes more and more prominent, those begin to dwindle. And I'm not saying this is not cessation. This is not God doesn't do it today like he did it back then. I'm just saying there's an ebb and flow to when God does things. Just like, remember, even the First Testament, how many years did they go without seeing miracles? 400 years in Egypt, 300 years in the period of Judges, okay? 400 years between the Old Testament. And the, I mean, God is not just constantly cranking out miracles all the time. That's not what he does. Even Jesus says, I do miracles to validate what I say. Not just to make our lives comfortable. As the word is becoming more prevalent and more prominent, the miracles are decreasing less and less. I'm not saying that God never ever does it. And like, there's a literally like a level where it's like, God's like, okay, the word is at 90%, miracles are at zero. I don't know the formula. But I'm also saying this, as the word of God dies and becomes ignorant in America, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people today who are like, well, that doesn't happen anymore. And God has brought that to an end. Usually the only people who say they're Americans and Europeans. But in other parts of the world, nobody's having those conversations on whether these things have ceased or not. But we may begin to see a return. Uh, not a return. That's a bad word. That's not a bad word, actually. But that's the wrong word. We may see a, 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 an influx of things that we've just kind of heard here and there in hospitals and with friends and stuff will start actually begin to make the news in some way or fashion. But we're coming to a point in Acts where this is going to become less and less emphasized. And eventually it's not going, I'm not going to say cease, but drastically become less prominent. Like I said, that's my observations. This is not God saying this. There's no verse in the Bible that says the way that works. I'm willing to swallow those words and retract that statement at any moment. This is just what I have seen as I look at things. Because the primary task of us believers is to spread the word. I also believe that one of the major reasons that miracles don't happen that much in America, too, is because I think a lot of Christians have bought into the scientific, atheistic way of viewing things, and they just don't actually believe that it can happen. And Jesus also made the point that you can't do this because you had no faith. How much is much? I don't know. I'll leave that up to God in changing us as things begin to happen. What is very clear here is that Luke is emphasizing the preaching of the word. That is the primary focus. And Paul is a machine. And we're talking about at least 24 hours of just nonstop preaching, except when he put his arms around the boy. Chapter 20, verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and put out to sea for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged it this way. He himself was intending to go there by land. And when he met us in Assos, he, we took him abroad aboard and went to Mytilene. So at this point, 
He sends them ahead of him on ships, and then he travels by foot on land, and then meets them there. So from Troas to Assos, they go by ship, and you can see this on your map, and then he goes by foot. And most likely there were people that he wanted to revisit and see and that kind of stuff. Why he didn't take the entire gang, I don't know, but that's what he tended to do. Maybe he wanted them to get there faster so they could prepare, because that tends to be his M.O. Verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived, and the whole time I was with you, from the first day I set foot in the providence of Asia, serving the Lord with all humanity, humility, and with tears and with the trials that happened to me because of the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not hold back from proclaiming to you anything that would be helpful, and from teaching you publicly, and from house to house, testifying to both the Jews and the Greeks about repentance towards God and the faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, without knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit warns me in the town after town that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not consider my life worth anything to myself, so that I may finish my task and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. (coughs) What Paul does when he's in the city, he gathers many of the elders from Asia. He invites them to come and join him, and they make the journey. Many of the elders from Ephesus. And basically this becomes his farewell speech. Many of the elders that he probably appointed and left them in charge as he left, Many of the people that he's discipled, many of the people that he probably didn't convert but ended up discipling in some kind of way, he calls them. And this is like a, an elders' convention. And they've come to Paul, and Paul is basically saying, probably would have liked to meet you in Ephesus, but that's dangerous, so we're meeting here. And he gives his farewell speech. And notice what he says here. First, he reviewed his past three-year ministry in Ephesus. And he emphasized his faithfulness in preaching the gospel, especially in the face of opposition. So he basically kind of summarized, I've gone here and here and here and here, and despite all the opposition, I have always considered this worth it. I have considered this worth it. He urged them to remain faithful. And then Paul turned to the present and stated the Holy Spirit compelled him to go to Jerusalem. So he says, now it's your turn. I have demonstrated faithfulness. I have walked the good faith in this among you. Now it's your turn to be faithful, to keep going despite persecution, despite the opposition. And then he tells them, it is the Holy Spirit who's telling me to go back to Jerusalem. Because many of them are going to tell him, no, 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 no. Don't go. It's not safe. You're not going to survive. And it is not safe for him. But what he's telling them is, I know I'm going to face trials, and I know I'm going to face persecution. And you almost hear in his voice, and I know I probably will not get rescued this time. Because this is his last act as a free man. This is his last act of ever experiencing a miracle and a supernatural escape or provision kind of way. Everything from this point on is going to either be facing trials without any rescue or whatever rescue he experienced is just God working through the minds and the lives of other people, but no Hollywood-like miracle in the way that we think of it. And he tells them, I'm going there, and I know what's going to happen, so don't prevent me from going, because 
I consider the cost worth it. Because what Paul believes is that he needs to get to Rome. He has established, the gospel is firmly established in Syria on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. He has firmly established it along the northern coast. But what he has not done has gone to Rome. Now there's a church already in Rome. But he knows that Rome is the furthest part of his part of the world. And at Rome, everything west of that takes you into the western world. And he doesn't know about the gospel over there. And if he can get to Rome and strengthen the Roman church there, i.e. the letter to the Romans, then he can begin to spread it out into the western world. And that is his ultimate mission. And somewhere, somehow, God has revealed to him that going back to Jerusalem is the way. Going back to Jerusalem is the way. Whatever the danger he faces, whatever he happens, how much he knows and how much he doesn't know, it is clear that he knows that he will never see any of these people ever again. The people that he has ministered to from the very beginning that he set out with Barnabas, he will never see them again. And so th- this is a huge emotional a moment for all of them. This is either their father in the faith or the man who the surrogate father came in and discipled them and took them even further. These are the, the, the children that he has either converted or the people that he adopted, so to speak, and, and took them further. And he has invested pretty much his entire converted life in this part of the world. And he knows that what God is going to do is going to be great, but he also knows it's just going to get harder. Whatever he has endured is nothing compared to what is coming. Verse 25. And now I know that none of you among whom I went around proclaiming the kingdom will see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of blood of you all. For I did not hold back from announcing to you of the whole purpose of God. Watch out for yourself and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. I know that after I am gone, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Even from among your own group of men will arise teachings, perversions of the truth to draw the disciples away after them. So he tells them, look, I am not guilty of holding back on the gospel. I have pushed the gospel out there as hard as I could. As clear I am. I have done what God has called me to. And now that I leave you, you need to disciple your people. You need to teach them the word. You need to teach them how to think. You need to teach them about the false beliefs that are out there. You need to teach them how to reason from scripture. Like I've demonstrated to you over and over again. Because there are going to be wolves that come in. And what Paul knows is that Satan will never let this go. He tried to stop it with persecution. He tried to stop it with Jewish edicts and that kind of stuff. But the reality is the gospel is now firmly entrenched in many cities. So the only thing to do is infiltrate the church and begin to cut people down from inside. And you can see that in America. Once America got firmly established with Christianity and we had our peace and comfort then false teachers, and more than ever before, I believe, 
are beginning to rise up and just rot us in from the outside. And very clever. I mean, there's so many ways of thinking here. And this is what the early church faced. And if you really want to see what it looks like after Paul kind of dies and goes on, well, well, towards the end of his life, read Galatians, read Jude, read Second Peter, and read the letters to the seven churches of Revelation. It is clear that they have been infiltrated big time. And it only took about 20 years for the devil to get good, solid, false teachers in there and start messing things up with any belief that you could possibly think of. And so this is what Paul runs runs. You need to know the word and you need to how to intellectually reason with people. In addition to caring and comforting and meeting needs of people. Both sides are absolutely essential to the gospel and to good healthy churches. Verse thirty one, therefore be alert, remembering that night and day for three years I did not stop warning each of you with tears. And now I entrust you to God and to the message of his grace. This message is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have desired no one's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine provided for my needs and the needs of those who were with me. By all these things I have shown you that by working in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul has not only said, I have done everything in my power to spread the gospel and make it known to people. I have never been guilty of holding back the word. I have never been ashamed. I have never lacked boldness. But he is also saying, and also know, I have never asked for silver or taken anything from anyone. My trade not only supplied for all my needs, but they supplied for all the disciples that traveled with me when they were with me. Why does he make this point? One, because there's going to be a lot of false teachers. They're going to come along. And they're going to claim that Paul and Peter and all of them just did it for the money, as they themselves are the ones actually doing it for the money. And he's reminding them, remember, you saw me with your own eyes. Don't believe that crap. Some people are so persuasive that they can convince you that something you saw well, it didn't actually happen that way. Oh, no, no, no. I don't care what you remember. Paul was, did it, and they're so persuasive. They're like, oh, yeah, maybe he did have ulterior motives. But the other point that he's making is this, is that you yourselves are never to be a financial drain to the people. You as elders, yes, Paul's going to write later, later that elders must be paid, right? Because they're giving up their entire day to take care of you and meet your needs and disciple you and all that and do weddings and funerals and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. They need to be able to support their family. But what he means is these exorbitant salaries, okay, or taking too much or taking so much that you become a drain to your community, to your community of believers and the community of the people around you that are not believers who need their needs met and that their needs being met by the church can actually bring them to Christ. And this is the point that Paul is making. And now I entrust you to God, the message of his grace, the message able to build you up and give you an inheritance. Sorry, I read that. When he said these things, he knelt down with them and all and prayed. 
And they all began to weep loudly and hugged Paul and kissed him, especially saddened by what he had said, that they were not going to see him again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. This speech that he gives sounds more like Paul of the letters. A lot of people have argued that the Paul of Acts in his speeches does not sound like the Paul of the letters. And so this is one of the arguments that some of them make to argue why Paul didn't write that letter or that letter. The thing is, I've told you, right? It's only been the last couple of chapters that I said, hey, he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians that we have. And hey, he just wrote his second letter to the Corinthians. These are the two first two letters that he's ever written. I mean, how many of you that you're speaking and writing style kind of changed over the last 20, 30 years? The way that you related to people, the way that you, you communicated to them and that kind of stuff. There's a really good chance that the reason that the Paul of the letters sounds a little bit different than the Paul of the book of Acts is, one, even I write differently than I speak. For those who've read my writings, my speaking is very different. My, my writings are very technical. They're very going in there. But I have, for the life of me, applicational points don't enter into my mind when I'm writing. I'm in, like, pure scholarly mode. But it's when I'm teaching that like applications start coming to mind and connections and that kind of stuff. And so one is just people write differently than they speak sometimes. Maybe not everybody, but some people do. I know I do. And two, yeah, that makes sense right here that Paul sounds a little bit more like the letters because this is also about the time that he's beginning to write letters. And he's changed it a lot. A lot has happened. A lot has happened. This is a different Paul in a lot of ways. We're all different, even just in 10 years going by. Some of us, depending on what happened, five, two years, we become different people. He is encouraging them, and he heads out. Verse 4 of chapter 21, the question is, where does that fit? Probably the best understanding is that when Paul is saying the Holy Spirit told me to go there, and we're definitely seeing the way that God will use him and take him to Rome, and later we're going to be told, Paul's literally going to be told that God told him to go to Rome and that he would stand before Caesar himself and preach the gospel before him, which is actually going to happen. And that God told him that this is the way that he was going to get him to Rome. In the beginning, it could be that the Spirit of God was saying bad things are going to happen to Paul and Paul is getting the, the Spirit telling him bad things are going to happen. And so the people are getting it from the Spirit, and Paul is getting it from the Spirit. But maybe in the beginning, Paul didn't know whether this is really God's will or not. The minute we see danger for people that we love, we're going to immediately say, don't do that. That the Spirit is saying, this is what's going to happen to him, but they're saying not to set foot there. Where Paul is hearing the Spirit say that this is going to happen, but he's determined to go. And right now, at this point, in verse 4, it might be a matter of opinion of whether he should go or not. But somewhere in all the traveling between 4, remember many months have gone by since 4 into the end of chapter 21 because they're doing all this sailing. Somewhere in there, Paul is told by the Spirit that he should go. That's one way of looking at it, that the Spirit's not saying don't go, the Spirit's just saying bad things will happen. And Paul, who's like, it's my life, and I don't care about my life that much, it's all about the gospel, says I'm going. And everybody else is like, but no, Paul, we love you and we do care about your life, so don't go. That's a strong possibility. And then eventually somewhere Paul gets the message that he is definitely to go 
from the Holy Spirit. And we know that's true because Luke puts it in there a couple of times. Paul says it, and this is the word of God. If that's not true, then Paul was lying or deceiving. The other possibility is the Spirit was saying no at first, but as they did more and more and more traveling, now the Spirit says, okay, go. And I'll give you an example where God does that. Jesus and the first miracle. Somewhere Mary comes to him and says, Jesus, Jesus, they have no wine. This is embarrassing. Do something about it. And Jesus, under the leading of God, has been told somewhere in the last weeks or months or whatever that it's not his time yet to publicly announce that he is the Son of God, that he is a miracle worker, that he is the Messiah. But then in that moment, obviously when he says, okay, go get this stuff, somewhere in there, the Spirit says, no, now it's time. And we know that he's being led by the Spirit because that passage is surrounded by, he was led in the desert by the Spirit, he was led to be baptized by the Spirit, he was led to Canaan by the Spirit, and he's God, so he was definitely led by the Spirit. So somewhere in just a a couple of days, a couple of hours, um, the Spirit comes in and says, no, now it's time. Now it's time. Maybe those are the two possibilities of what's going on there. But it is very clear, especially in the next chapter, that he is supposed to go to Jerusalem because Luke makes that very clear that God told him that. Does that help answer the question? Good question. Great question. Chapter 21, verse 1. After we tore ourselves away from them, we put out to sea, and sailing a straight course, we came to Kos. This is a teeny little island on the southern part of the northern coast of the Mediterranean. On the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Parta. And we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia. Phoenicia is the country right north of Israel, where Antioch um, and then um, Jerusalem are. We went abroad, aboard and put out to sea. And after we sighted Cyprus, we left behind on our port aside, and we sailed on to Syria and put in at Tyre. Tyre is the port, the most major port on the coast of Israel and Phoenicia, right north of Israel. Because the ship was to unload its cargo from there. After we located the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they repeatedly told Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And when our time was over, we left and went on our way, and all of them with their wives and their children accompanied us outside of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went abroad the ship, aboard the ship, and they returned to their only homes. We continued the voyage from Tyre and arrived at Ptolemus. And when we had greeted the brothers, we stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we left and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Each city that they step in, it seems that they leave more and more of the disciples of Paul behind. And by the time they get to Jerusalem, it's going to be clear that it's just Paul and Luke. It's just Paul and Luke. And a couple others will come in here and visit, but it's mostly Paul and Luke. And then they get to Philippi. And remember, or sorry, Caesarea Philippi. And remember, Philip is one of the seven. He's that guy way back in Acts chapter 7 who witnessed and preached and converted the Ethiopian eunuch and then was suddenly just taken away 
and dropped down in Joppa and walked all the way to Caesarea Philippi and then decided to build a home there. And he's been there all these years. And he's been faithful. And what this shows you is we have all different styles of evangelism. We have the disciples who've been traveling around a lot in the Galilee and Jerusalem area, the apostles. We have Paul who's gone to every corner of the earth that he could possibly go to in a Roman shipping kind of a sense. And then we have people like Philip who just built a home and established a community of people. And we're going to see that later with Timothy and Titus too. Um, they did a lot of missions. Um, but by the time the, the letters of Titus and Timothy are being written, they've They've settled down and they've planted in because as much as going out and evangelizing people has to happen, and it does, also putting down roots and living among people and discipling them and helping them through life, that's also important too. And one should not be sacrificed for the other. And some of us might have been called to do both and some of us might be called to do one or the other. But as long as the body of Christ as a whole is doing it all and doing it well, that's the important thing. That's the important thing. And then he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And so what this is emphasizing is he's got daughters. Can you imagine having four daughters who prophesy? <laughs> so, but what's interesting is it never says anything about what they prophesied to Paul. And whether Luke saw that that message was important. Luke, for whatever reason, thinks it's really important to mention that they prophesied and that they were gifted in that. And usually when he brings up a prophet, and usually when the Bible brings up a prophet, they usually speak and say something. But these girls are not recorded as doing that. So either Luke didn't think that it was really important to, to communicate the message, or he has another thing going on here. But either way, he just mentions that they prophesize and he moves on. While we remained there for a number of days, a prophet named Aragabas, remember this is Agabus, this is the same guy that said there was going to be a famine, and they sent out Barnabas and Paul to collect the money to bring it back to Antioch and, um, and Jerusalem in order to take care of people during the famine. came down from Judea. He came to us and took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and his feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says this. This is the way that the Jews in Jerusalem will tie up the man whose belt this is and will hand him over to the Gentiles. You always got to love the drama of the prophets. <laughs> um... I've given a lot of messages, but I've never tied myself up in front of a bunch of people or like Ezekiel where he laid down on his side and ate food off of um, cooked dung and, and beat models of Jerusalem and, and other prophets that put horns on their heads and pretend that they were goring people all to make their point. Um, but this is what a lot of prophets did. They would, they would physically do things in order to... I don't know... Maybe they thought, like, people don't listen a lot of the time, so if I'm really dramatic, then they'll pay attention. They won't forget what I said. Or if that's just the Eastern way of doing things. Um, but very dramatic here. When he heard this, both we and the people begged him, Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be tied up, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Because we, he could not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. After these days we got ready and we started up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea came along with us too and brought us to the house of Manasseh of the Cyprus and a disciple from the earliest times with whom we were to stay. 
So now he has made it to Jerusalem. Why is this important? We have seen over and over and over again, Paul say, the Holy Spirit is calling me to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. I know that I'm going to be persecuted. I know I'm going to be put on trial, but I need to go there. Then a prophet has come and says, you're going to be tied up. You're going to be put on trial. Da, 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 da. But notice that even the prophet said that was going to happen. He never said, and God says, don't go. The only people who are saying don't go are the people who are not getting prophetic words from the spirit or a prophet. And they're saying, no, we love you too much. We don't want these things to happen. No, there's nothing wrong with that. They have, I mean, right? There's nothing wrong with them saying, please don't go. But over and over again, this is being emphasized. Why is this important? Because it's important to understand that when Paul is going there to be arrested and put on trial and then be imprisoned for many years now, this is not the result of evil men in the satanic world undoing Paul and the gospel. This is the result of the Holy Spirit wanting this to happen. What we would say is the horrible evil stuff that's happening against me. And everything is going to collapse. And that's true, except for the collapsing part. What Paul is making very clear is, yes, this is horrible, evil men, but it's not undoing and collapsing anything. Because this is all happening according to the will of God. 